There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Bruce Springsteen was scheduled to perform tomorrow at Nats Park in Washington, D.C., but his tour was postponed due to illness. If you still need your fix of the boss, we're filling the void by flashing back to my 2018 convo with East Street Band member Nils Lofgren when he rocked the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia, sharing stories about growing up in D.C., meeting Neil Young in Georgetown, and even writing the local sports theme, Bullets Fever. We are here with Nils Lofgren who you know from E Street Band, his solo stuff, Neil Young stuff, I mean, all kinds of stuff over the years. And a local boy, too, from back in the day, right? You grew up around here, too, right? Yeah. Um, when Take me back to those early days. Um, how did you get started in the beginning? Was it, did you, was it an accordion that Pops got you? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I started, uh, my first eight years were in the south side of Chicago. Yeah. My dad took a job in D.C., and we moved here for the real formative years. But when I was five years old, I asked for accordion lessons. My parents didn't know they were going to pay for nine years of it. You asked for accordion lessons. <laughs> I asked for accordion lessons. It seemed like all the kids on the block played accordion. And I fell in love with the study of music. And after the waltzes and the polkas with an accordion, my teachers took me into um, classical. And uh, nine years of classical studies. It was a great backdrop when we all fell in love with the Beatles and Stones and Hendrix and Motown and Stax Volt. And I picked up the guitar as a hobby and uh, played teen clubs, had a lot of little pickup bands, but nobody in the mid-60s ever thought, you know, we idolized the Beatles and Stones, Hendrix, Roy Buchanan was our local hero, Danny Gatton, but nobody thought you could do that for a living. And it was really one night here in D.C. I saw The Who at Constitution Hall, and we all ran over to see Jimi Hendrix experience at the Ambassador Theater, including, (laughs) including Pete Townsend and Keith Moon. They were in the audience. And I still remember leaving that night after being mesmerized by Jimi Hendrix and The Who the same night, kind of feeling, and really I remember it as an uncomfortable possession of the notion of like, dude, you have to drop out of school and try to be a rock musician. And like, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. But, and it was like this possession saying, no, we're doing that. And now 50 years later, to just complete 50 years on the road, I'm working on a new album that should be done this year and out in spring, I hope, and to have a, a three nights at the Birchmere in the D.C., Virginia, Maryland area where I cut my teeth on, grew up, still many old friends, hoping to get my mom, my three brothers will be sitting in with me. Uh, I never, when I hit the road at 17, 50 years ago, would have been greedy enough to think that 50 <laughs> years later I'd have a run of hometown shows and be working on a new album I'm proud of. 
Well, that's a hell of a double billing, the Who and Jimi Hendrix in the same night. I could see why anyone would get possessed by it. I like that you used that word, possessed. It's almost like it was beyond your control. Something was telling you, nope, this is your career now. Well, there was a, a very comfortable kind of fandom where, uh, to me, music's a sacred weapon. That's one of my album titles. It's kind of healed me and still does. It's a lifeline for me and billions on the planet. It truly is the greatest language. And there was a comfortability where, like, you know, you, you'd wait in line to buy the new Beatles record. You didn't need to know what it sounded like. Right. You didn't need to preview it. Beatles, Stones, there's so many great bands, you know. The counterpart of the British Invasion were, like, the Springfield, Moby Grape, the Birds, countless bands, yeah. Motown, Stax Folk. So there was this comfortability of just in your basement with friends trying to learn the songs and play them at a little teen club. And it never occurred to you that you could do that. <laughs> so all of a sudden to walk out of the Hendrix show after seeing The Who at the Constitution Hall and feel like you have to try to do this, I knew nothing about the music business. I still know very little. <laughs> but, we'll get there someday. <laughs> but it was kind of an uncomfortable possession that's never left me. And I had no idea 50 years later I'd still be alive doing it and working on you know, a new batch of songs I created. It's so awesome. You mentioned that you played those early days, these teen clubs and the early bands, playing in the basements and practicing. It was called Grin? Is that what the early one was? And uh, weren't you guys performing, was it Cellar Door in Georgetown and where you met Neil Young? Well, initially when I was 14, I started kind of laying guitar. My brother Tommy was playing in the house and showed me my first chords. Tommy was my first teacher. I had a band called The Waifs with Tom Miller, one of my brother Tommy's friends, another band called The Grass with Scotty Ball and Roger Gibson, just cover bands, local yeah. cover bands. Yeah. But Grin was my first professional band when I was 17. Grin put ourselves together yeah. and hit the road with original music, looking for record deals. We struck out in auditions in New York and we decided, we were a big local band, and we decided to go to LA. And three weeks before we went to LA, knowing nothing about the music business, I'd sneak backstage and ask advice from all the shows. There were so many great bands. Mm -hmm. And at the cellar door, I walked in on Neil Young and Crazy Horse and said, hey, I'm you know, 16, I'm just a professional musician, just turned 17. I don't know what I'm doing and I'm looking for advice. And Crazy Horse, who are now dear friends, of course, yeah. said, I go to New York, kid. And I'm like, well, we went to New York, we struck out, we're going to LA. And Neil Young had his guitar, and he was just looking at me. He said, well, do you have any songs, your yeah. band? I said, yeah, I write songs for the band. He yeah. handed me his Martin and said, sing me a song. Yeah. And I sang him one of the... I'd written most of the first Grin album already. Mm -hmm. We were about a year and a half away from recording it. He said, sing me another. And I sang him four or five songs. He said, you know, those are really good. And uh, why don't you hang out for a couple days with me and watch the shows and let's get to know each other. And when he left town, he kept calling me, said, look me up when you get to LA. And true to his word, he kind of took us under his wing. His producer, David Briggs, moved me into his home and was our mentor. And um, on that rocky ride looking for a record deal, a year later when I was 18, Neil and David said, we're doing this project called After the Gold Rush. We want you to play guitar and piano and sing. So at 18 years of age, to make that album with Neil Young was an extraordinary uh, experience. Isn't that crazy? Just a chance encounter here at a bar, you know. And, and But the guts of you to go up to him and play him songs, and, and almost a, a generous, a spirit of generosity on his part, too. You know? Huge. And, you know, so there, it's funny. It's the first time, because I was so naive, right? And when you go, I would Wildwood Plaza, a little strip mall across from Walter Johnson High School. We used to get in line at the record store there, 
long line to buy the next Beatles single right. or 45. And I'd look at all the albums. And, of course, we all thought anyone with an album in that store was a billionaire and was set for life and had a plane, da-da-da. Right. And, you know, none of us realized that very few people ever get successful. But, um, you know, it just never occurred to me that I could be a professional musician until that night. And people say, oh, you're so brave. And I'm like, no, I was scared. <laughs> I was scared to death. I didn't know what I was doing. Now right. I was a dropout. Right. In, in Bethesda, nobody dropped out of school except the guy who knocked up his girlfriend that was pumping gas and had no future. Right. And I hadn't even had a girlfriend yet. And I was just nervous enough to sneak back and ask for advice. And, and understandably, a lot of musicians are like, hey, I'm busy, kid, or, uh, you know, a line or two, and I got to get ready for the show. And to have a guy like Neil, uh, Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood on the Truth album, Truth, I'm sorry, the Truth tour with Jeff Beck, they would let me hang out. They would let me come to the hotel rooms. And it's funny, I used to remember I'd have my telly and I'd sit in the corner and they'd forget I was there and laugh and stuff. I opened for them uh, at the Wheaton Youth Center and DC Armory. Oh, wow. uh, be, and this was before then, I was just a fan. Yeah. And they were so sweet to let me hang out with them. And, and they would always, the phone would ring and they go, oh, Nils, you gotta go, the girls are coming up. Yeah. I'm like, I don't wanna be here for that. <laughs> and uh, for, so for Neil to take time and spend a couple of days with me and let me see four Crazy Horse shows on the first tour, um, to this day, uh, you know, no greater mentors than Neil Young and David Briggs, and uh, you know, yeah. really got me started. Was it? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but did I hear somewhere that you helped contribute to Southern Men? Well, not not the song. Um, the uh, we were recording the song, and Neil said uh, we need you to play piano on some a lot of the record. And I'm like, well, I'm not a professional piano player. So yeah, but your accordion days, me and David, they said, look, Nils, we think you can handle some simple parts. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I, I knew to be quiet and say, yes, thank you. Right. But I was nervous, and I practiced all the time. They'd take lunch breaks on the patio in Topanga Hills, where mm -hmm. we recorded it with a remote truck at Neil's home. And I was usually alone, just constantly practicing. Ralphie Molina stayed behind, and we were working on Southern Man. It was a boom, boom, Southern Man. Real, it's called halftime, really down, slow beat. And um, after a while, I wanted to change it up. And, you know, I come from the old accordion polka. So I started doing an octave thing on my left hand, and Ralphie started double timing the drums. And we got. We got into this roaring double time groove. And when they came back from lunch, David and Neil, like, well, what, what the heck is that? And I said, well, that's Southern Man with the polka beat. And we all laughed, and they said, that feels great. Let's do it in the solo in the end. So it was an arrangement change from my square accordion days that really turned out to be special in that song, which, again, that's kind of... I still, a lot of times, don't know what I'm really doing other than <laughs> just keep moving forward. Just well, that's... Forward. That, I love how that... It's almost fate, man. It, we've it tapped right back into the, the first instrument, the accordion that you got started on. So I love that kind of stuff. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game. And you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Fill in the timeline um, between the, that Neil Young period 
And before you hook up with with Bruce and the boys with the E Street Band, what I know there's a, a solo stint there. Um, catch our listeners up on bridge that gap. What brought you from Neil to Bruce and everything in between? Well, of course, Grin. Uh, back then, there was no internet, no video. You opened. You were an opening act for anybody and everybody, which we loved to do. Uh, also, one night in 1970, Bill Graham, the famous Fillmore West and East Ballrooms, had an audition night where 20 bands would play for 20 minutes each. You know, the locals would come in free and get a buck, beer, and uh, Bruce Springsteen was there playing with Steel Mill, and Grin was there. And we did get a, we passed the audition, and Bill Graham started giving us opening act slots, but that's when I first got exposed to Bruce, and I've been following him ever since. I'd buy tickets to see him at the bottom line in 74, 75, and we became, you know, kind of friends, and uh, I was always a big fan of his since then. And uh, fast forward... Uh, to 80, you know, I, I keep going to see shows, um, and I would stay in touch with Bruce, and in the early 80s, uh, Grin made four albums, a lot of commercial, no commercial success, but we got a lot of good reviews, and we made really good records, it was really a, you know, old, old school band, we lived together with our crew, we played everywhere and traveled constantly, and sadly, we did our farewell concert at Kennedy Center, because the company's like, look, you've had four albums, you don't make us money, no more record deals. So we tried to go out with some class and style. And I was uncomfortable being a solo artist, but uh, my manager at Art Linson said, look, man, A&M Records is going to need a few months to figure this out. And when they decided to let me continue, said, you have to do this. You can't, what do you want to do, go back and be a cover band? I said, right. no. So this is your only way to move forward and make music. So I became a solo artist, right. if you will. But all the bands I have, even this weekend at the Birchmere, yeah. my brothers are playing Greg Verlotta. I don't tell them what to do. Yeah. I give mild direction and let them contribute because right. you want to be surprised by good musicians that are sure. playing with you and inspired by them. If I'm telling a drummer what to play, we're in trouble because I'm not a good drummer, that kind of thing. Yep. So anyway, uh, you know, in the early 80s, the record deals dried up again from my solo stuff. I was a little down in the dumps, but I would call Bruce and stay in touch. And mm-hmm. He invited me up one weekend, and we went around and jammed in New Jersey. And even um, in L.A., we'd take uh, drives together and talk about music in general. And I told him about my work with Neil Young and how I loved being in a band. Mm-hmm not always having to be the guy, you know, sing harmonies, play different instruments. And I think he filed that away. Anyway, long story short, in 84, Born in the USA came out, or was coming out, and uh, Steve had to go do his solo thing. Was you replaced Stevie Van Tan, right? Yeah, yeah it was okay. bad timing. I had no idea. And four weeks before the opening night of the Born in the USA tour, Bruce calls me. He says, hey, why don't you come back up? You know, maybe we'll get the guys together and jam a little bit. And I thought, get the guys together. What the heck does that mean? Oh, those guys. <laughs> but he's very understated, and I didn't bust him. Sure. But I realized this is probably an audition. Right. I don't know why. Yeah. I'm not going to start digging. Yeah. But I did some preparation. It's funny. A, a local, um, what we call them bootleggers, but yeah. a very honest, honorable uh, record collector, Tom Beach, who is a good friend, still is, um, he came over with uh, East Street Band bootlegs, and I would write chord charts to Badlands mm-hmm. and Thunder Road and Promised Land, things you know they're going to play. Yeah. So that when we played for two days in New Jersey, I wasn't having to ask you know, the bass player to yell chords in my ear, yeah. and we could just play. And I got up there. Uh, crazily enough, uh, three months earlier, four or five months I've been to Bruce's, we listened to Born USA all weekend, I thought, well, that's a hit album, and Dance in the Dark's a hit single, one of your best records. You could tell right away, yeah. But um, Tom Beach, even though nobody could get an advanced copy, somehow had a cassette. Yeah. 
of the unreleased Born in the USA. And he wouldn't even let me keep it. He said, no, man, I'll, I'll come to your parents' house where I was. <laughs> um, and I wrote chord charts to an album I'd heard at Bruce's house all weekend long. So when I showed up, I had these charts we played for two days. And after the second day, I said, hey, you want to join the band? I talked to everyone. It feels good. And they needed somebody. And, you know, because of my history with Bruce, just talking about how I did enjoy being in bands, I loved it. A lot of solo artists don't like that. So it's just been weaving back and forth. And, you know, thanks to Bruce on Born USA, I met Ringo, and we became friends and played in his first two all-star bands, and many bands with Patti Scalfa and made solo records, done a couple bands. What did the Kennedy Center Honors with Willie Nelson. And uh, just been very blessed because uh, I really thrive in a live setting when you've got a group of guys and girls or whatever and a great body of songs, and in two hours you got to walk out in front of people and perform. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you covered a lot of it. <laughs> let's, get to the, let's get to the reason we're here. Um, the Birchmere show's here. Um, there's three this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You said you have a new album coming out too, right? Um, are we going to hear anything from that, or is it going to be mostly stuff from your older work? Well, you know, years ago... Uh, Fantasy Records kindly did a 10-disc box set, and they let me handpick the best of 50 years with 40 bonus tracks. My wife Amy produced the packaging, and um, you know our local friend here, Tom Goldfogel, helped with all the publishing and craziness. Because you go back 50 years, and you know I'm a kind of adversarial rec- re- with record companies, so my attitude is, well, if they lost the contracts, it's my music, I own it. Right. And you know, Tom pointed out, well. Just because they lost the paperwork doesn't mean you didn't sign. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was almost two and a half years of work by a lot of good people assembling this box set. So my point is I had to like handpick the best 200 songs of you know 50 years. And uh, I have all these songs to choose from. I'm working on an album now that I hope will be done at the end of the year out in spring. None of the songs are protected, so I'm not sure I'll be flying out too much new stuff because I want to get the record done. But I just have hundreds of songs that I'm proud of to choose from now, and I got my brothers with me, and Greg Varlata, who's been working with me 10 years, tap dances, plays trumpet. I may even try tap dancing in the show. Oh, let's which, do it, Which huh? will be mildly musical or hilarious, <laughs> one or the other. One or the other. Memorable and, either uh, way. But, you know, it's a homecoming. We're hoping yeah. that my 91-year-old mom will get there, and all my brothers will play. And uh, this is the area I grew up in, and, you know, really cut my teeth on being a first an amateur musician and then a professional with grin and again i would have never been greedy enough to think 50 years later i'd have a run of shows here locally and working on some new music absolutely well sort of in closing final question um you, you've talked a lot about how your you know your local roots didn't you also write the bullets fever wasn't that you yeah i'm, I'm still a pretty crazy sports fan i played basketball my whole life um, and when the Bullets won the first, it was like an overtime game against Dr. J in the first round, I think it was, I got so inspired. I was in a rental house in Garrett Park, Maryland. I wrote this song, Bullets Fever. The next day, Bob Dawson at a local great studio bias helped me record. I did all the parts, and I printed up 25 cassettes and, you know, the old yellow pages. There's no Internet. Mm-hmm. I drove around all day long and dropped off Bullets Fever at the radio stations anonymously, and they kept winning. And it became the number one requested song. It's the first and last time I ever got any AM airplane. <laughs> and they kept winning, and they yeah. went on to take the whole title. So I had to change the words. I changed them again to reflect going into the championship series. Yeah. 
And then again, the final version is they've won now. And it was just a magical time to just as a fan, yeah. write a song. I was so inspired, again, a little bit of a possession. <laughs> and within, you know, 30 hours, I was driving around town with a cassette, dropping it off at radio stations. And, and <laughs> they showed us the courtesy as a community of winning and taking the title, which was a great chapter. Well, now it's got to be Wizard's Fever. You're going to have to remix it, you know, because they changed well, the name. Well, well, you know <laughs> or what? actually Caps Fever. They're, we got the reigning Stanley Cup champs yeah, here. Thank God. You should write Caps Fever. Thank God the Caps finally won. <laughs> I did a little 30-second Wizard's Fever during in the last playoff run yeah. but bullets fever i'm not going to redo it it's a <laughs> it's a moment in time it's the same sports franchise yeah. and uh yeah i still stay in touch i, I met uh, i ran into mitch Kupchak the yeah. other day uh was well, yeah, just last year the uh the ncaa you know the final four and then the final game was in um arizona mm-hmm. and my wife amy and i went and uh, mitch Kupchak was in the audience we had a nice reminiscence and visit but those were magical times awesome well we appreciate you taking the time you've been very generous um everyone again come out at the birch mirror nils lofgren thanks jason thank you sir yep thanks so much for listening to beyond the fame with jason fraley our theme music is scott buckley's clarion remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear we'll see you next time